0: Hi, welcome along to NUFC Matters. A bit of a, a different flavour to this show. Uh, I've got a very special guest, somebody who I've wanted to interview for a long time, followed his work with interest, and uh, somebody I admire greatly. It's David Ike, How are you, David?
1: All right, Steve. Good one.
0: Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, I know it's uh, quite precious. And I, you, I know you're a busy man, obviously, with you know, you, obviously all the books you've done. You do a lot of uh, speaking and, um, obviously, uh, a lot going on in your life. So, again, thank you for, for giving up the time. Uh, I want to go back. Uh, and, and I do want to give this a bit of a sporty theme, like I said before we came on air. I want to okay. go, go back to your early life. Um, you were going to be a professional footballer, David. So, can you tell us a little bit about that, first of all?
1: Well, you know, my life has been, a, when I look back, has been a, 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 quite an extraordinary series of synchronistic, quote, coincidences and bits of luck that have uh, weaved me through many different um, professions and experiences up to where I am now. And uh, one of them was, uh, well, it really started when I was uh, a kid. I was born on a council estate in Leicester, where my brother still lives, actually. Uh, and uh, I just um, wanted to be a footballer. Uh, uh, what happened was that I, I was a kid that thought other th- uh, the best things in life happened to other people, right? Uh, which is kind of not what I became uh, in my attitudes, but I was then. And um, I, I remember I was, um, I was at a junior school. I was only very, uh, very small. And I saw this note on the door where you, you went into the school. And it was for people, kids, to put their, their names down to have a trial for the school team. And Of course, I never put my name down because it was like, well, I'll never get in, so it ain't worth it. But what used to happen is we had a playground that, that was just slightly tilted from end to end. And we used to play football every playtime. Uh, and it used to be called uppers and downers, whether you were kicking up the little slope or down the little slope. Uh, and uh, what I didn't know is the, um, is the teacher that was uh, looking after this, um, it was the third year uh, football team, the first time you played football um, in a team, uh, was watching me. And I, I, I always got attracted to being in goal. And uh, so I, I, I'm walking or running uh, uh, home uh, one night, the night before the trial the next day. And I heard this kid shouting about me, Ike, Ike. And uh, he said, uh, "The teacher said um, he wants me to have a trial the next day, even though I put my name down." So I ain't got any boots. So I go home. We got no money. Um, I went home to the to the house where my brother still lives, and uh, my father came home from work, and I told him, and I said, oh, "I ain't got any boots." So there was no um, Nike shops. <laughs> <laughs> and adidas shops in those days so we walked down the hill to this little classic kind of uh, little um, row of shops and i'll never forget it of, of all the places in all the world in this like sell anything shop was this pair of boots and all i can tell you is they were massive and they would have been um they would have been an um, ancient uh, if you played for Arsenal in the 1930s, you know. <laughs> they, had, they had this massive toe cap on the front. And if you, if you kick the ball with your toe cap, and I mean it, 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 it went like a bullet. So it, they were about, um, they must have been three sizes bigger than my feet. But there was nothing else. So I, um, I went to the trial the next day. Uh, in these boots and everyone was, you know, laughing at me, which, you know, I had quite got used to. Uh, And um, it came down to um, they uh, had this shootout between me and a kid, even though I was a goalkeeper to see who would get in the last place in the team. And um, of course um, I I did the best shot because I hit it with me toe cap. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was the start of my football career. And, and f- uh, funny enough, you know, from that moment when I got in the team, this, you know, early attitude in my life of these things happen to other people, that started to uh, rapidly unravel. And I decided I wanted to be a footballer. And uh, of course, it, people found that funny. You know, you're going to be a footballer. But again, uh, a series of coincidences and, and performing at just the right time in front of the right people uh, got me to, to uh, join Coventry uh, when I left school at 15. And um, I thought I was going to be a footballer and I was for a while. Uh, we, um, when I was um, 17, 18, we got to the uh, final of the FA Youth Cup uh, against Tottenham Hotspur uh, with um, Graham Souness was in their team. Uh, Steve Perriman was in their team. Uh, We had uh, a captain of our team was Dennis Mortimer, who would go on to um, uh, captain Aston Villa to win the European Cup. Uh, And um, it looks like that's what was going to happen. But then arthritis came along and um, and finished my career at uh, 21
0: must have been devastating that david because i mean you know it's it's a dream it's, it's a lot of boys dreams to to play football and uh, it, you know it, back in those days of course it wasn't it, it wasn't the uh, you know a fortune making game that it is now but you know still the ambition to to play and, and some of those names that you mentioned as you say went on to, to do great things
1: yeah i mean uh, the, the the biggest basic wage i ever earned in football was 33 pounds a week so mm-hmm. um, you know I, I didn't have it mention. Uh, but it, it, when my career ended, um, it, was, it was part deep disappointment because this was my childhood gone. I'd worked for it all the way through my childhood, but there was a, a bit of relief as well. I'll tell you why. Um, when I joined Coventry uh, at, um, at 15, after about six months, uh, my left knee swelled up. For, for, no one could work out why. And they said, well, we have no idea what's wrong with you. So carry on playing. So I did. And then over the years, my right knee swelled up, Um, particularly the year after uh, we got to the FA Youth Cup final. Uh, And um, then my ankle swelled up. Uh, And and so it went on. And I left Coventry City thinking I was never going to play again. And then I got this call from a, a absolutely wonderful man called John Charles, the legend that is John Charles. Uh, uh, of course, he, he was known as the Gentle Giant, and he was. He was massive, but he was a lovely guy. Far yeah. too lovely to be a, a football manager, actually. And he was managing Hereford United at the time, and they were one of the top... Um, uh, non-league teams who were trying to get in the league, and but they only played like or they only trained twice a week uh, in the evenings because they were it was a non-professional club. Uh, and uh, he asked me if I'd go and play for them, and I had nothing else to do, so I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go. And um, in no time, um, you know, they'd got in the league, and I was playing professional football uh, in in what is now League Two. Uh, as a goalkeeper at the age of 19, um, 19, 20, which, which was very, very, especially in those days, uh, not quite so much now, but in those days, it was very, very early to be a goalkeeper in, in, a, in, a, um, in a professional team, you know, mm. uh, first team. Yeah. And um, we um, won promotion in our first year, uh, I think we finished second went up to what is now uh, League One. And um, in the uh, close season, uh, I'll never forget it, Um towards the end of the, uh, what was happening every day, this is why there was a little bit of relief as well as great disappointment, is that um, the arthritis was still troubling me. But I wasn't going to tell Hereford, we, we were now a professional club in the league, um, because they'd have said, "Well, we need a new goalkeeper. How long is he going to last?" But every morning we used to train at Credden Hill. You never do that today, but th- that was the SAS base. Still is. We used to train there. Great sports facilities. You should train there. It was our training ground basically. Um, and every morning, especially in the winter when it was cold, well, you know, like it's like a Newcastle. I've, I've yeah. been at new- I've been in you. New- I've trained uh, up there in in the northeast. It's bloody cold. Uh, <laughs> and and anyway. Um, I, was, I, would, I would be um, be running, warming up every morning, and I would be in agony because of the arthritis. And uh, I became known as a bit of a hypochondriac because I, I was giving them different reasons for why I was, I was limping a bit or I got a bit, uh, a bit stiff. I'll be all right in a minute. And when, when I'd warmed up, you know, things settled down and you'd train normally and everything. And then the adrenaline would get you through the games. Um, and, and towards the end of that season, when we won promotion, I was uh, 20 then. Um, it went the, the, my, the, the, the swelling went the pain went I thought cracked it and then we went into the closed season and uh, this is what I'll never forget I'm, I'm, I'm lying in bed my, my wife of 29 years was uh, next to me Linda and um, I, I started to wake up and as I sort of woke up I realised I couldn't move and I, mean, I mean couldn't move um, I couldn't move at any muscle any joint, nothing. And I was not able to breathe. I was struggling to breathe, thought I was going to die. Yeah. And then eventually I gasped the breath. It couldn't have been long for obvious reasons, but it seemed a long time. And the moment I gasped the breath, I, I was in absolute agony. Every joint was, um, was like someone sitting a knife in it. And uh, I, so I went to a Footballer and I woke up never to play again, uh, professional football again. And that's when I uh, started my career in, uh, in in journalism. I got a I got a job on a um, a weekly paper that was just about read by the people that wrote it. You know, the, yeah. the, in that in that period you had Watergate, but um, my my level of journalism in those days was Gate because. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my jobs was to go round the, 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 the local villages in Leicestershire asking people in the local store and the local vicar if there was any news going on, you know. Um, so I started at the bottom, to say the least. In fact, I, I must have dug, dug down a bit and started below the bottom with it, really. But,
0: <laughs> before, again, you leave your, before you leave your football career, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Hereford, you must have been there around about the time that they played Newcastle in the FA Cup, of course, in seventy. In 72, when uh, that goal keeps getting repeated every time the FA Cup third round is televised on BBC, Ronnie Radford and Ricky George were the, were the heroes.
1: I was, I was sitting in the stand right behind it. Uh, and, <laughs> and I, I tell, I've got Newcastle angle to that story because they played Newcastle. But I've got yeah, another go on. Because a lot of people, you, they remember that Ronnie Radford game. But what they forget is that Hereford went to St James's Park and got a 2-2 draw. Yeah. And what happened is that I started that season um, in the first team and, um, uh, you know, we were doing well. Uh, and then I got injured. And when I when I came back, uh, I couldn't get back in the team. And there was a, 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 a I was 20 and there was a, a goalkeeper's about 33 called Fred Potter. And uh, he was in the team and that I replaced him later when we got in the league the following season. But um, what happened was that um, the, 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 we got drawn away at Newcastle, um, the old Newcastle ground, where I played actually um, one time. Uh, and uh, it kept getting called off. I remember we went up there once, uh, ready to play, and he got called off very late. We came home. And then we eventually it was a night game. And Malcolm McDonald was the big star of Newcastle at the time, um, and um, well, <laughs> we walked to the ground from the hotel, I think we stayed at the Swallow Hotel, if that's still going. It's um, just,
0: It closed down recently, is it the one in Gateshead, I think, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, well, it was the Swallow Hotel we stayed at in um, in Newcastle. And w- we walked to the ground, and of course, there's a massive crowd, it's about 42,000, it was packed, I think St James's Park held in those days. And um, massive atmosphere, and we're going out against this big first team. Um, But um, something very strange happened. It was almost surreal because we had a a center forward called Brian Owen. And uh, Brian Owen was a real worker. What he would do, you'd chase every ball down and he would hassle, you know, defenders on the ball. And in that way, he he was very effective. But in terms of skill, his his second touch was usually a tackle, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Anyway, it's a, I think it was about 17 seconds. It was something ridiculous. And I'm sitting in the stand with the other players uh, that weren't uh, on the pitch. And uh, the ball came over to him on the, on the right-hand side of the penalty area. And he's hit it. It's probably the sweetest shot that Brian ever hit. And it went, Ian four was the goalkeeper, and it went in the top left-hand corner like a drill. One 0 uh, and so you—it doesn't happen very often, I suppose. Certainly not in those days. But St James's Park, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah, they are one nil down, Terra United. We're a Southern League team at the time. Um, it was the year before we got in the league, and and then came the wave from Newcastle, and uh, they got a penalty. I think did McDonald score the penalty? Or they scored it. Scored another one. It's two one. And then we, uh, we get to uh, just before, before half-time, late, late, late in the first half, and, and uh, Colin Addison, who was the player-manager, he used to play for Nottingham Forest and uh, Arsenal, um, he cuts in from the left-hand side of the penalty area, drops his shoulder, and from the edge of the box, uh, on the angle, he hits this screamer into the, top, into the, 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 the far um, left-hand side of the goal, McFall flying over, can't get it. 2-2. Two two, and in the second half, to be frank, uh, Newcastle didn't really threaten much in the mm-hmm. second half. We got a two two draw, and that is how um, we got to the the, the famous game uh, at Edgar Street uh, with the Ronnie Radford goal. And Ronnie Radford, I mean, it, there was more meat on a butcher's pencil than uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Ronnie Radford. Uh, and and he, he you know I, I face shots from him all the time in training you know constantly, uh, and uh, he had a good shot but he, he, he wasn't someone that you you'd you'd remember oh yeah it's he's Ronnie he's, he can he can smack him, uh, but that that moment, it, and the pitch was I mean it was field it's like a quagmire wasn't it? Oh, well. <laughs> Uh, behind behind the top goal at Edgar Street is a is, is a cattle market, and you would have thought you know the the, the the cattle had been on the on the field. It was incredible, and you know I I played at Egger Street loads and loads of times um, uh, during the winter, and oh dear, I mean playing a goal in it was 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 almost impossible Get, not getting getting yeah. your you know out the mud and stuff. But anyway, this ball's obviously just dropped up perfectly. And uh, they say everything is timing, because uh, you know, like I say, more meat on a butcher's pencil, and he's hit this ball. I mean, there can't have been many shots in football history that have been hit so true as that one. Uh, and then um, Ron, um, uh, we got the second goal with uh, Ricky George. He was a lovely guy. I've met him a few times since. He, uh, he actually won that. He, he actually was the owner of a Grand National winner, Ricky George. Uh, That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I met him at Heathrow Airport uh, on on, on the Monday after Aintree. It was the first time I'd seen him uh, since uh, Hereford. And I'd seen him on the telly on the Saturday, you know, the owner of the... The uh, national winner, and then you know, I, I walk into him uh, in the check-in uh, at um, at Heathrow on the Monday when he's going off for a celebration holiday. <laughs> he was—he's real character, Ricky George. I, I got a lot of time for him. Uh, and uh, and and another thing that people forget, and I you know understand why he didn't get the same publicity, is that the following the um, following week, because of all the times that the um, Newcastle-Hereford game was called off. Following week, um, there was the uh, game to play in the next round, Mm. uh, which was played midweek because that had been delayed by the delays of the Newcastle game. And it was against West Ham United. And we Mm. played them at Edgar Street, and it was the West Ham United. There was Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, uh, and Jeff Hurst. They all played. and. We got a nil-nil draw, and very close to the end, we hit the post with a header, which would have t- taken them out. And then we um, we went to West Ham, and this was an afternoon game during the midweek because it was during the um, you know the the the, pa- the power cuts and the money. oh yes yeah yeah yeah. so they they weren't having floodlights on uh, so we played in the afternoon and uh, at um, Upton Park a massive crowd again in fact we we could we couldn't get to the ground on time because uh, you know at the time we wanted because of the, all the crowds of the traffic uh, and and uh, you know they were on fire that day i think they, they beat us four uh, one something like that four one four two something like that uh, so that was that was a, a memorable period of, um, of fantastic uh, of, of, of my, my, my career, well, it's, it's well, got, it left well,
0: Newcastle fan with nightmares, unfortunately. And as I say, every FA Cup third round day now, you see Bronny Radford screamer going into the into the north. And Newcastle, you talk about Hereford going on and getting that result against West Ham. If my memory serves us correctly, and. I was only born then, but it was uh, Newcastle's next game. I think was at Old Trafford against Manchester United, and I think they beat them. And I think up until recently, it was you know that was the last time we'd actually beaten Man United at Old Trafford. Bizarre, bizarre, really, for Newcastle to lose that game. But that's what the FA Cup used to be about—the magic of the FA Cup.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's been it's been destroyed. Yeah. Um, It's like everything. It's like society. You know, they talk about the one percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is a absolutely is a one percent in terms of the accumulation of wealth and, and and you you're seeing football go that way you know um yeah. because this lockdown it's something that's not come to light yet but it will this lockdown, which I say is absolutely crazy and and expose a great length
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: for what it really is it's going to be devastating for um smaller fo- professional football clubs yeah. you know because um Your primary league clubs, uh, they're going to lose money. I mean, you you know, some of the Arsenal takes millions on a match day with the crowd and and food and everything. Um, But they can get by with the television money, although the television companies are going to want to cut that down because you're not going to get the same audience because it's not the same experience. But um, what... um, what we're looking at with the smaller clubs is they depend on people coming through the gate. They don't have the television money, and how they're going to survive, um, uh, most of them, goodness only knows.
0: There's been an announcement this week that said a percentage can go in, so they're looking at helping some of the non-league clubs. But I think I think you're right. I think we've seen droylsden I think there's one team that's gone out of existence. I know Wigan have got serious financial troubles, but I think I think as well, if we want to try and flip it into a positive. I think there was an arrogance, certainly in the Premier League, and maybe even in the Championship, that taking supporters almost for granted, and because of the vast amount of money that comes in via TV, I think what we've seen is an arrogance to say to suggest that supporters didn't matter anymore. They've been. You are
1: absolutely right. You are absolutely right. I've been saying it for years, and and you know it's the same with, I call it I call it the gimme vote. Mm -hmm. If, If you if you're a gimme person, I'll explain what I mean by that in a sec then you're totally taken for granted. So for for instance, if you um, are the natural constituency of a political party, uh, in other words, you're the gimme vote, they're gonna vote for us anyway, no matter what we do. They're not gonna uh, focus on what you need and what you'd like. They're gonna focus on what people need that they need to persuade to vote for them so they're gonna get power. And it's the same with, with supporters and these uh, big clubs, uh, they take it as a gimme that they're gonna come, they're gonna buy the season tickets. Uh, and, and, you know, the real money's coming from television. So gimme people just get taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when, when the, the, the prices were going up and up and up, I said at the time, all you've got to do is, is, is not, go to, not go to the match for a month. Mm-hmm. And and, and and you'll see their attitudes will change. Because you can see what empty stadiums do to the quote product. It it's not the same. And 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 it's um not acquiescing to being taken for granted that that gives the supporters the power, but of course they, they they still keep going. And while they keep going, uh they'll go on being taken um for granted, uh, and uh, you know, it's the same with what's going on now. As long as people keep acquiescing to what this, uh, what this uh, far, far right um, uh, government is imposing upon people in this country, indeed, it's happening around the world, they'll go on doing it until we say, mm. no, we're not doing it, and then we'll realize where the power is. And, and football supporters would realize where the power is um, if they'd said, we're not paying these prices then did I have to bring
0: them down. It's what's happened at Newcastle. I mean, you know, I'm not sure how much you, you follow football, David, but at Newcastle for thirteen oh, years five. we've had we've we've had Mike Ashley as our owner. And a lot of a lot of fans of other clubs tend to look at our supporters and go, Well, you know, what are they complaining about? They've got a guy there who's who's keeping the club running. He's you know, he's he's putting his money in but From our perspective, he's he's torn the heart out of our football club. He's he's running Newcastle United to to basically promote his other sports brand and businesses globally. And from our perspective, he's not investing in the in the football club. The stadium is 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 almost you know dropping dropping to bits. The training facilities are 20 years behind. Sunderland, who are actually two divisions below her, and you know we, we don't have any investment in transfer windows in, in, into the playing squad. We get loan deals and we're, we're, we're used as a stepping stone. So from our perspective as a, as a football fan base, yes, we're not in the same position as these poor clubs that are going out of business, but we're not happy with what we've got. And what we saw at the start of last season, prior to COVID, was 10,000 fans didn't renew at Newcastle. So we actually had, on that opening game, People boycotted as well, um, a 40,000 crowd in a 52,000-seater stadium. And that is unheard of at St James's Park. And, uh, you know, from our perspective, I think you're right. You vote with your feet, but it's very hard when it's, it's passion. It's in your heart yeah. and you want to go, you know? Yeah, but, you
1: know, I, I used to write a column for um, a, uh, a football website quite, quite a long time ago. And the whole, um, the whole theme of the column was football as a metaphor for life. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you, you, you play sport, um, or you, you say play a football game, um, you go through emotional um, ups and downs, highs and lows, seconds or minutes apart, which in a general course of life, you would only feel much further apart. Um, so it, it's, um, it's a, a, a magnification of life. And, and when you look at the way um, football is run and who by, it, it is a, a, a microcosm of the global society. And what has sickened me, you know, I, I, I'm a, a great traditionalist. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I like the, the traditions of things. And I grew up as a kid in Leicester. And I, I learned to play in goal, literally, um, watching Gordon Banks. Legend. Gordon, at Filbert Street. Um, I, I would I, What would used to happen is that um, we had a... Because it's gone now. It's the Walker Stadium uh, right next to where it was. But um, it was the Filbert Street end. And it was um, a, a small a- a area of fans. And I would be outside that gate... One thirty every Saturday, so I would be the first one in, and and I would get my place right in the centre behind the goal. And at Filbert Street, uh, a bit like the old Upton Park, the nets were very close to the crowd. The, the the walking track was very narrow, and so I was I was almost in not quite, but almost a touchable um, distance from Banks. And I would just study him and where he where he went when the ball was in certain situations, and I learned to be. Um, a goalkeeper that way. Another thing that happened very quickly—I'm—I'm I'm going off on a tangent, but I, I will come back—is um, uh, that I—I I grew up uh, playing school football in the same school's football system as uh, Peter Shilton. Um, he scored against me once. He used to play out—he used to play outfield for his, um, his uh, school called King Richard III uh, When I was playing in goal for my school, uh, he was two years older than me, uh, and I and I I saw Shilton um, uh, play when he was a kid. And I saw him play for England Schoolboys at Wembley. Uh, um, And uh, I I saw um, his his career unfold. And uh, that is one extraordinary goalkeeper, uh, Peter Shilton. And um, he he was just phenomenal. And he worked so hard to to, uh, get the best out of himself as he could. So those two um, absolutely fantastic goalkeepers um, I, I had playing for Leicester City, and, and, and therefore I, I, I was learning enormous amounts uh, from uh, from watching them, and 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 I I, I just love the whole history. I love Filbert Street and and looking at the history of Filbert Street and the history of the club and 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 and, and, and where they came from, out of the working class, uh, um, and 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 into what they became. Uh, the individualism of the grounds I used to love that when i when I was playing football uh, uh, in the league, uh, you'd go to all these northern grounds and they were all different and they all, they all had their own unique organic um, uh, development they, they, n- none of them looked the same mm-hmm. um, and 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 there were people's clubs they were um part of the community uh, and then in came the the money. And we now have football clubs with extraordinary history, not least connected to the working class of Britain, that are little more than playthings often, not always, mm-hmm. but playthings for multi, multi, multi-billionaires. And and what, what happens is the, the billionaire... Um, atmosphere the billionaire way of doing things uh the the billionaire attitude just disconnects from the club because it wasn't the local businessman anymore you know was chairman of the club it was some guy from the um far away um some desert country or or some russian oligarch uh and they've become playthings and i think that's real sad and and you you just described with uh, Ashley an example of that where you you could see even from afar that Ashley's heart wasn't in that club he didn't understand the history of Newcastle united he didn't understand its relationship to the community of newcastle united it was a business deal and that that's that's how um football is being dis- disconnected from its, its heartbeat, which is the fans. And, and I come back to this. When um, they started playing uh, football again in the Premier League uh, and the uh, Championship in, in, in basically mid-summer, and if they're not having crowds in mid-summer, Anyone think they're going to have crowds in midwinter when when everything that moves, every cough, every sniff, every flu is going to be called COVID-19 if you're not having crowds in midsummer? But I was watching it and literally there was no crowd, of course, uh, and was not the same. It's not the same. It it comes to something when the television companies have to play in crowd noises um, to try to overcome The lack of atmosphere. The fans are the heartbeat of every football club. And they've been taking for bloody granted year after year after year since this uh, financial takeover of great historical institutions has taken place. I've been sickened by it myself.
0: Yeah, me too. I think it's. I think it's a big game changer. I've got. We've got about fifteen minutes left, so I do want to cover a couple of other points. I, I'd love okay. to. We spoke offline about um, a game that you were at, which of course was a historical game in Newcastle's history, and that was of course Kevin Keegan's debut for Newcastle oh, yes. United as a player.
1: I have. Um, I I've been in a lot of grounds with a lot of atmospheres, but I have never experienced anything like Kevin Keegan's debut at uh, St. James's Park Uh, I was uh, doing uh, football reporting at the time for the uh, the old and late and great uh, BBC sports program Grandstand uh, where you know you had the football reports uh, at the end of the show as the games were ending and uh, Kevin Keegan uh, signed for Newcastle and his debut was going to be at home against Queen's Park Rangers. And I went up there in the train. Uh, one of the things I remembered about the trip, just, just a quick offshoot, is I, I I got to King's Cross and um, I was looking for something to read on the train and I bought this book and it was tales. You know, um, Test Match Special? Uh, oh, on, yes. On the radio, right? When, uh, it, when, the, when the greats were involved, you know, like Brian Johnson and uh, John Arlott, et cetera.
0: Yeah.
1: And it was a book about, funny tales that had happened on that show told by the people involved and i remember going up to keegan's um debut and we got about half an hour out of uh, um king's cross it's friday night it's packed people are standing up and i read something in the book and i started laughing and i was crying in the end i, I was on my own i wasn't with anybody <laughs> and everyone was looking at me I- I was crying for a long time because, you know, you, you get yourself together and then you read something even funnier and you're off again. So I remember that. And then the next day, my goodness me, um, health and safety, <laughs> <laughs> social distancing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was incredible. There were so many people there. And, 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 the, and the Newcastle ground, there was just it, it just it was like a was like a bowl that, that, that held that atmosphere in there. And um, it, every time he touched the ball, crikey, it was the noise on what should happen. But um, he scores the winner, 1-0. I remember he, the ball came through to him uh, on the right-hand side, coming from the main stand, uh, drew the goalkeeper, slipped it in, and the noise was incredible. And uh, I'll never forget that. It was a, a really memorable day and uh, i was very sad uh, actually um uh, when um, when he didn't win the league because i thought newcastle that year uh, were just incredible to watch and um, who was the guy they, they bought? Aspira, somebody like that. That
0: well, was years later, yeah. I mean, that season that you're talking about was 82, 83. Yeah, and I'm, talking about, I'm,
1: I'm talking now about when he became manager. Oh, when, when, he, became,
0: when he became manager, he got Aspriatino, Tino, yeah.
1: I was, I was sad that, that When they were going with Manchester United that, that yeah, season. Yeah, when
0: they should have won the league, yeah. It was, oh, I mean, that was, it was fascinating.
1: Well, they are seven points ahead at one point, weren't they? Then they brought aspria and uh, uh, it, it went a bit pear-shaped. But they were a fantastic team to watch. Yeah in
0: that time Amazing amazing for him to come off the golf course never managed a team and uh, to then suddenly build such a you know, a, bat, a bastion of invincibility as Shankly would have described it, you know, at St. James's Park. Sadly, it never won anything and, you know, all we have is those memories of some wonderful football, you know, and uh, we've been in a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a depression, it has to be said, ever since. Some some bright moments with Sir Bobby Robson and uh, Alan Pardew got us to Europe, bizarrely, uh, a few years, a few years ago under Ashley's reign, but yeah, it's, uh, it could be worse, we could be Sunderland, we could be two divisions lower and uh, having, you know, having no hope, but um, I you,
1: that that, that, that make, must make you feel good yeah.
0: Well we don't crow about it too much um, but it, it's, one, it's one of those things you cling on to sometimes when, you, when you're feeling a bit down I do want to ask I, you I've, about, the, I've, got
1: a, I've got a quick Sunderland story actually Oh go on,
0: um, yeah go on Because
1: um, you know when I, when, when I was coming into football and when I was watching football obviously that was, that was the time I, for me it was, it was the most magical and you had all these famous players you'd seen on telly or not, not much on telly then, but you'd seen it in the football books and magazines. And now you were, you know, um, you were close to them, but what happened at Coventry is I was an apprentice. You used to have apprentices then, um, where you, you know, did the jobs around the club in the afternoon and trained in the morning and etc. Uh, and, um, what they used to do is take, um, one of the apprentices with the, with them on the first team trip to kind of push the kit around and stuff. And I remember, uh, going to, um, Roka and how that's a blooming atmosphere as well. That was, um, and, uh, we, 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 we played, we played there and I was sitting on the bench and, um, it, it, the, the manager, his name's Noel Campwell. He was, he was shouting, you know, and, you know, effing and blinding at, at what was going on on the pitch and I remember this, this, this genteel like Dixon of Drop Dream uh, Copper came along and stood right in front of him so he couldn't see the game and leaned forward <laughs> and asked, asked him to mind his language and, and yeah, what, what Noel Campbell said in return was could not be described as minding your language anyway uh, but that was a fantastic atmosphere who was the famous goalkeeper he played in goal that day uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy Montgomery Jimmy Montgomery, yeah, and uh, yeah, we got a one-all draw. I remember. And the other, the other, the only other trip that that I went on was that the, right at the end of that first season, when Coventry got in the in the league. Jimmy Hill was manager when I joined the club, uh, and then uh, got replaced by Campwell because Jimmy Hill decided he wasn't going to take Coventry into the first division. He, as, then, as, then, as then it was, um, he was going to go into television, and uh, it was away at Southampton, and um, you know, it shows how. Times change. We, we were playing away at the Dell, and Chelsea were playing at Sheffield United, and we had to better Sheffield United's result to stay up. Otherwise, we were going down after one season. And, and I was taken on the trip, and my job. Um, just this really does show you how communications have changed in quite a dramatic fashion, to say the least. There was no smartphones or anything like that. Not even any walkie-talkies. <laughs> I'm sitting on the bench next to Campwell. And at the Dell, you came on the pitch through the tunnel at the, at the corner. So you had to walk past the crowd and, and sit on the bench halfway along the pitch. Um, and um, we, uh, oh God, what was his name? The famous um, Southampton player. He went to Manchester City, didn't do quite so well. Uh, mm. He played for England, uh, a, a pal of Keegan. Danny um, Mills. <laughs> No, it'll come to you. It was earlier than that. Anyway, he plays a very, very good player. And he eventually goes on to uh, become a racehorse trainer, I, I uh, understand. Anyway, um, what, um, what happened was my job was to, every now and again, walk down to the Mick corner. Mick Shannon. Mick Shannon. Oh, yeah, good player. Um, and was to walk down to the corner, walk all the way through the wooden stand, this old wooden stand. Um, uh, then uh, get onto the uh, the steps up to the back of the stand. And it shows you about health and safety. People were sitting, sitting, watching the game um, on the steps in the stand. And I would climb over them because I was heading for the Coventry Evening Telegraph reporter in the press box who was um, keeping track of the score from Sheffield United. That's how that's how Cantwell uh, was getting news from Sheffield United that just shows yeah. how times change. And I was going up there. First time I went up there, Sheffield United won Chelsea nil. Came back, had to tell him, hmm, you know. Um, uh, and he would be shouting at the players, we've got to get a goal, we've got to get a goal. Sheffield United won up. And then I went back up uh, again later and it was 1 1. I came back, he's smiling a bit more. Okay, okay, we just need a draw, we just need a draw. Uh, and um, um, we. Um, uh, oh no, we, we didn't need a draw, we, we need to better, better their score. Uh, and uh, and then um, I went up again quite late in the game, Chelsea 2, Sheffield United 1, and we stayed up. Uh, and uh, I was 15 at the time, and uh, well, that night was uh, on the way back to, to uh, Coventry when they uh, they stopped off at a, a hotel. Um, it was quite a night.
0: I bet. I bet. I want to finish up uh, the interview, David. Just with just with your thoughts on the takeover again. I, I don't expect you to have watched the whole four months of saga of Newcastle United's uh, you know potential takeover by PIF, the public uh, investment fund from Saudi Arabia. I know you worked in Saudi, albeit in the seventies. Oh, um, what, oh no! What remind it, me? What's your take? What's your take on that? I mean, my my view on the takeover really is, and, and I know we've seen letters from Amnesty International. We've seen Kasogi's, you know, former girlfriend come out and talk about it and say that she thinks that it shouldn't happen. For me, it's a football club. I've told you the I've told you the distress the fans have been in because of the the owner. Um, it's been very difficult because me as a Newcastle fan who who speaks his mind and does a podcast, we've been dragged through this this minefield of politics, of of religion, of of you know uh, you know, people talking about murder. It's something which you know we have to we've tried to like say, well look, we're really only interested in the sport. Then you say that and you say, well you're supporting sport washing. It's it's been a minefield. What what's your view on it? Do you my view is that, you know, we we as a society in Britain aren't exactly blameless we colonized best part of the world in our past is it oh, not wait. time to is it not oh, best oh. time to move on from saudi and let them give them a chance to move on from their past
1: well i i i i absolutely uh, agree with you some of the things the british empire did was appalling, but um uh, there's moving on from your past and they're still living in it okay and i uh, was um uh, asked by uh, an organisation uh, uh, led at the time by by Jimmy Hill when i was a journalist by this time uh, to go to saudi arabia and help set up uh, uh, football and to um try to get a, an international saudi arabian uh, team that could compete um at least in their region yeah. Uh, I, I remember uh, there was a World Cup game uh, we played um, when I was there uh, between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yeah. And Iran, I think Iran won 2-0 in uh, Riyadh. And uh, honestly, um, the, the t- talk about uh, de- depressing uh, when you were looking at the, the hierarchy of uh, Saudi Arabia. But I was there only eight weeks, couldn't stand the place. Um, the people uh, were lovely. The, the you, you know, the people you met uh, were lovely, but the hierarchy and the way the country was run was absolutely disgusting and totally hypocritical. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there were fronts for uh, getting alcohol um, into uh, Saudi Arabia uh, for, for the princes and stuff while they were, uh, you know, uh, having terrible penalties for drinking alcohol if you were a member of the population uh, and uh, this guy uh the crown prince um uh mohammed uh, salman uh he is uh um i, I can only describe him i have done a lot of research on this uh, steve i can only describe him as undiluted evil uh and so i do understand why people are are concerned uh, and um I would, I would really, really be sad if um, Newcastle United, as I said earlier, this club with its fantastic history and community uh, uh, connection, it, it's an outgrowth, it's a, an expression of the community, should become a plaything of, um, of these uh, Saudi Arabian um, oligarchs who um, are, 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 are truly um, disgusting, uh, both in the, uh, what they do on the international field and what they do to their people at home. Um, I just think it's sad that these people, I mean, you know, you've got all that fantastic wealth in Saudi Arabia from oil. Now that's the people's bloody oil. It's not the House of Saud's oil, it's the people's oil. The House of Saud has said it's our oil because we, we're running the place. And of course, the the House of Saud was put into into being by the British, the British Empire. So it all connects in the end. Uh, And and so you've got all that wealth in the hands of a few, while there's a lot of poverty in Saudi Arabia, because the people don't get access to the wealth from their own land. And, And I can't think that there's going to be some kind of perceptual, moral, integrity transformation when it comes to the way these people will treat Newcastle United. Um, I, I just wish they could find someone else.
0: It'll be interesting to see how it develops. There's a consortium, of course, of, of different people. The Rubens, you, you know, are uh, uh, you know involved. Amanda Staveley and PCP PIF would obviously be majority shareholder. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. At the moment, it seems very likely that you know the the, the Premier League will will maintain their stance and uh, you know con, con, you know they're playing with a straight bat. They're, you know they're, they're not giving them an opportunity to uh, to progress. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, David, I just just you know I, I wanted to do this interview about about you know you know about your past and about football you do have a present and you are you are you know very busy you've got your website you know nicely placed on the screen behind you iconic.com But tell us a little bit about what you're up to uh, at the moment what what are you doing now david and just 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 your chance to you know to plug what you're actually doing mate
1: well uh, the, my other website um, is davidite.com uh, where mm-hmm. the news is put into uh, a very different context every day uh, what happened to me, Steve, is that um when my football career ended, or it, you know, ended for me with the arthritis, um, I'd always wanted to be uh, as a second string, a journalist. Uh, I'd always read newspapers, even when I was a kid, uh, and I, um I ended up working for newspapers, the Leicester Mercury, uh, and then I went into radio, and then into the BBC, and then international BBC, um, and then some. Very, I became a national speaker for the Green Party at one point in the 1980s. And then uh, I, I went through a, a real transformation of, um, of consciousness, if you like. It, it was um, it, It's a long, long story, and it's for another time. But I, I, was, I started seeing the world in a completely different way. Instead of seeing random events, I was seeing how they connected. Um, instead of uh, seeing what people were saying or appeared to be saying, I could see what they were really saying. And, and and my life there suddenly became from the, about 1991 to present day, uh, an extraordinary synchronistic um, journey of um, coming across information from endless sources, including personal experience, but endless other sources, that were showing me that actually uh, 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 there's a cabal, I call it the cult, the global cult, that's actually running world events and it is, Uh, been driving um, human society towards a global fascist state. Uh, and uh, one of the foundations of that is to continually centralize power uh, and every time you centralize power fewer people are dictating to the lives of, of more and more people this is where globalization comes from because this goes back way way back and the reason i'm so busy now and i'm doing interviews all day every day and i've got this book out the answer which is um, a big exposé book uh, not only of the the, the cult and its goals uh, in general, but a a very um, detailed exposure of the monumental lies we've been told um, since uh, January, uh, February, March, about this uh, pandemic. Uh, And uh, we have got time to go into it now, but um, the scale of the scam is so vast that it includes this. There is no virus. There never has been a virus. And I show in the book that that's the case, um, using, um, uh, not uh, pulling it from the ether, but virologists and doctors and uh, medical professionals from around the world that you'll never see on the BBC. Uh, and and, and um, the reason, like I said, I'm so busy now is what I've been um, saying in my books since uh, you know, the early 1990s. The plan for the world was and what was coming and why and who was doing it and the techniques they used to do it It's all come to to pass um, In 2020 uh, and therefore there's um, a massive interest in 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 what I'm doing Uh, But like I say, you know, it's it's funny how you you look at football You look at sport but football particularly and you see how what has happened to football mirrors um, what has happened to the world Uh, Because, you know, I talk about the the centralization of global power, you know, they're they're moving towards uh, uh, an elite, um, if not global, certainly European league that will leave um, the domestic game pretty much behind. That's what the plan's been all all along. And uh, this what's happening now is going to advance that very much um, with the, the challenges to the lower clubs. Without which the uh, the traditions of football as we've known um, will disappear.
0: Amazing to to talk to you, David. I could I could listen to you all day. Give give your website out a, a shout out again, please, because uh, you know I'm sure people who've watched this will be interested to hear a little bit more about you know the the books that you've written and you've written you know a vast amount of books in in you know over the last 20 years. Please please just give your your website a plug again. Well,
1: the, the the website that people can go to uh yeah, um, anytime any day is um davidike.com and that's where my videos are I do a lot of videos um and where every day the news that the mainstream media presents in a certain way uh, we say actually this is why it's happening not why they're telling you this is why it's happening uh and um uh, they'll, they'll they'll see my books there and uh Iconic.com is a, a, now a very large um, media platform of um, alternative information across the whole spectrum of um, different subjects, um, which we created actually since last November, because what we could see coming was the uh, monumental uh, censorship um, that is now absolutely unfolded. I mean, I'm banned from um, YouTube, I'm banned from Facebook. I've been banned by the Australian government from speaking in Australia. Uh, and so it goes on. Uh, and uh, the, the reason they ban you is because they don't want people to hear it. If I was just a nutter saying s- ridiculous, unsupportable things, they'd just laugh. Like, oh, he's a nutter. Instead, we've got to stop people hearing what he's got to say. So we'll ban him. And you know, you know when the ban started overnight, uh, 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 back in what was it? April was when I did an interview, which got a massive audience, um, alive. And I said there is no virus, and I explained why, uh, and the evidence of why, and where the the deaths are coming from, and where the the cases are coming from. The cases the cases are actually coming from a um, a test called the RT PCR test that is not testing for a virus. That's how crazy it is. The guy, Kerry Mullis, is an American. He won the Nobel Prize for um, developing this test, the RT-PCR test. He, he did it in the 1980s. And he said this test must not be used to diagnose infectious disease because it can't. And that's the test they're doing to decide if you've got uh, if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2 or not. Uh, that's how crazy it is. And um, Uh, All over the uh, world, you're having doctors, medical professionals ordered um, and through regulations enforced to put COVID-19 on death certificates of people dying of other things. In America, there are massive financial incentives for hospitals to diagnose COVID-19 when people are dying of other things or um, have other things. In America, still to this moment, Uh, the Medicare system pays hospitals $4,600 if they diagnose regular pneumonia. If they diagnose the same symptoms, COVID-19 pneumonia, they pay them $13,000 per patient. And if they put a COVID-designated patient on a ventilator, they pay the hospital $39,000. It's a scam of absolutely stunning proportions and what is it doing it's transforming human society it's destroying the independent livelihoods through businesses and employment with those businesses making people dependent on the state and when the furlough ends in october it's going to be carnage and uh, that dependency on the state is um, in part what this is all about plus um, constant surveillance of a Chinese uh, variety uh, called track and trace which they want to develop in a, into a massive 24 uh, 7 surveillance system and thirdly to get a vaccine insiders that is um, has been developed over a long period of time uh, by uh, a man who can only be described I've been tracking him in my books for decades uh, only be described as a super, super, super psychopath called Bill Gates. And um, uh, the, the, the people might ask how it is possible for someone selling software and making unbelievable amounts of money out of it, could possibly be running global health policy through the World Health Organization of which he is now the biggest funder. It's such a scam. And you look at all these different people in the different countries, Like Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer in Britain, big financial connections to Bill Gates. Um, Anthony Fauci, the driver of the policy in America, big financial connections to Bill Gates. Professor Neil Ferguson, who produced the ludicrous computer models of half a million dying and two million dying in America if we didn't um, uh, lock down and create the mayhem that's been created. Big connections financially to Bill Gates as uh, uh, is uh, Imperial College in London, where he operates. Uh, it's just an absolute, unbelievable scandal, and they're um, censoring people like me uh, in the mainstream internet uh, so that uh, people don't hear it. But I think,
0: and we think we've got problems with Mike Ashley. <laughs> yes. Yeah. David Icke, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, best of luck with everything you're doing. Stay safe uh, in your home, you and your family. Uh, been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for sharing your memories about uh, your past and about Newcastle United.
1: Cheers, Steve. Been a pleasure, mate. I've really enjoyed it. Nice to talk about something different.
0: <laughs> Thanks, mate.